So I'm trying something new today. I'm going to try to do this with a, a tablet computer. Hopefully it will recognize me. Uh, that way I won't have to uh, capture my papers through the wind, which is, seems particularly good today to do. And of course, I'm having a trouble getting started, so hang on. I am me. Hello. There we go. All right. I also cut the... Uh, cut the uh, light down so I would have enough power. So there we go. All right. There we go. We're about to get started. Okay. Ta-da! It worked. Okay. Well, happy Thanksgiving. Good deal. What a weird time of year and a weird situation this all is, isn't it? It's amazing. So it's been a while since I've been up here. You've probably noticed that. You've probably been saying, thank goodness. Um, but uh, I had to take my... Uh, sleep board, my sleep medicine re-examination, which means I had to study. Um, and I am now declared to be an old person in the current pandemic. I'm one of the elderly. That'll put the fear of God into you when you are now declared to be the elderly. Um, and so it takes a long time to study. So thank you, Todd, for, you know, for giving me a few months off from preaching so that I could recertify, which I did. Yay! Okay, so I passed. So I'm good for the next few years. And also, you know, new thing today, I'm preaching from this tablet. I do have a paper copy in case this completely messes up. Um, and I have had some hearing problems this week. Um, I think they're mostly gone, but to the sound folks, if all of a sudden I start screaming, it's because I can't hear myself very well. I've had some fluctuating hearing. So it's been kind of a, a strange kind of week here as I've gotten ready. We're going through these first 14 books of the book, the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus. Uh, this fall and into the early winter. Um, and Daniel took a lot of my thunder last week because I was going to do a review of where we were. And dadgummit, he beat me to it, all right? And I was also going to tell you that it was a transitional part. And he said that too, you know? So I'm really annoyed that he did this. But, but really, the second half of chapter 6 and the first part of our reading tonight, or today rather, is part of this transitional passage that, that we're talking about. So I think it's all kind of good to look at it all together. So in addition to that last part of chapter 6 that he talked about last week, I would add the first nine chapters of chapter 7 into that transitional part, and you'll see that as we go through the text. As we think about our text today, it's really hard not to get excited about what's coming, isn't it? The plagues are coming, right? We're going to start kicking. Um, I should say kicking his rear end, I guess. Be careful what I say here, Right? Um, the confrontation with Moses and Aaron, of Moses and Aaron with Pharaoh, is about to really start. So really, before we get started with today's text, I want to actually look forward a little bit to the Exodus narratives, because there's some really cool stuff, and, and I know Todd's going to cover a lot of this quickly, and I'm not sure he'll have a chance to cover this part of it, because part of this is just to step back and look at the, the plague narratives uh, as a whole, because they are beautiful Hebrew literature. There's great symmetry. There's great repetition. Um, and as we go through these in the next couple of weeks, you might not get a chance to see that. To our Western ways of thinking about literature, these are foreign ideas, this idea of, of, of repetition and, and symmetry and stuff like that. Um, but to the Hebrew uh, reader, this was great stuff. God calls all these events signs and wonders. Sometimes he does use the word plagues, but the most common terms he uses are signs and wonders. And today is actually the first sign and wonder. We're going to see that today. 
The plague narratives themselves, though, are really three sets of three. Um, Each set of three, so number one, number four, number seven, each begin with Moses confronting Pharaoh in the morning. Each of them become more intense and destructive as they unfold. Plagues one through three involve blood, uh, the Nile turning into blood, frogs and gnats. Those are some serious nuisances. And they all come about because Aaron stretches out his staff or his hand. Plagues four through six get a little bit more serious. Uh, Flies, death of livestock, boils, more serious nuisances. They all come about by God acting without the use of Aaron or Moses' staff or hands. And the last three plagues, hail, locusts, and darkness, more destruction and death. They all come about by Moses' hand and staff. So you see this symmetry that unfolds. And then there's this one that is set apart, plague 10 death of the firstborn. It stands apart and it's set apart by the instructions for the Passover. Now, over the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear more about that, but I just think it's really cool to step back and just look at that symmetry and how Moses wrote that and how it all unfolded, Um, because to Hebrew eyes, this is wonderful writing, and to our eyes, it's just a big list. So I really want us to think about that for a moment. But now we've got to turn back to our passage for today. And what we're going to see today is that God is, in fact, in control of natural events and human beings, and that our responses have meaning. Let's pray. Lord, these are indeed difficult times, uh, and you call us to be your people in the midst of them, so may we learn today from your word uh, what it will mean to understand more about you and to understand more about our role. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I said, we can look at the last half of Genesis 6 and the first nine verses or so of chapter 7 as a transition. Now, recall that Moses was commissioned to go before Pharaoh in chapter 4, and he did that in chapter 5. And you remember the outcome. It wasn't so good, right? Uh, things did not go well for the Israelites. Suddenly there was a lot more burden on them. They had to work harder, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then in, in uh, Exodus 6, the Lord speaks again to Moses. That's what uh, Todd talked about a couple of weeks ago. The Lord spoke again to Moses and tells him to go to Pharaoh. And as usual, Moses complains that he is of unskilled speech. Then we came to this genealogy last week. And I was watching that online. I got to tell you, that was awesome to hear Jeff do that genealogy. If you didn't get a chance to hear that, you should go back and hear it. It was really cool. I I wanted to applaud myself, and many of y'all did when you were here. But there's this call of God to Moses, then the genealogy, and this God, this call of God to Moses. Those two calls in chapter 6 are the same, okay? It's pretty clear those. They're different from the ones in chapter 4 and 5, like Daniel said, but they're the same here in chapter 6 and 7. So at the end of chapter 6, what we have is Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses just keeps saying the same thing over and over again, doesn't he? He just always has the same concern, the same complaint. So these first nine verses of our text today are really God's affirmative answer and final answer to Moses. How and why will indeed Pharaoh listen to Moses? And first of all, he tells Moses, I will make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now again, think back to chapter 4. What did God tell Moses? He said, Moses, I'm going to make you as a God to Aaron. 
And now he's saying, I'm going to make you as a god to Pharaoh. Well, what's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal. In the Egyptian religion, Pharaoh was God. All right, so now God Almighty is telling Moses, I'm going to make you a god to the persons that the Egyptians think is a god. That's a pretty big deal. But Moses' job then is to just obey and let God take care of the rest. And they did. As was read, Moses and Aaron did it, verse 6, as the Lord commanded them, thus they did. Elsewhere in these first nine verses, there are a couple other things of importance. We see again this idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Daniel talked about this several weeks ago. He noted that in the Exodus passages, we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart. We see that Pharaoh's heart was hardened or became hard. And we even see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And here in verse 3, he is indeed saying that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. So what's the difference in all these expressions? Does it mean anything different in the different ways that this is expressed? I don't think so. As one commentator has stated, there's no special distinction between these expressions. It may simply be concluded that God calcified Pharaoh's own stubbornness and cruelty to accomplish divine purposes. We also see that God promises to multiply his signs and his wonders in the land of Egypt. And he notes, again, that Pharaoh will not listen. And then God will lay his hand on Egypt and bring the Israelites out by judging Egypt. So not only is this a reference to the nine plagues in general, but it's a reference to that final plague that will bring the death of the firstborn. And also to that final judgment on Pharaoh himself where he's killed as he tries to cross in the Red Sea. And finally, we see that God tells Moses that Pharaoh will demand a sign. In the words of verse 9, he will demand that you work a miracle. So now, that's the end of the transition, right? Now we're going to start with the confrontation. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded, and Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Boy, I keep going back to chapter don't I? All right. So now we got to go back to chapter four again. All right. What did Moses do when he came to the Israelites? He had three signs, right? His staff turned into a serpent, his hand turned leprous, and he poured the Nile water out and it turned into blood. Todd told us about that a few weeks ago. But there are some very important differences between Moses turn, uh, yeah, Moses turning, Moses' staff turning into a serpent for the Israelites and Aaron's staff turning into a serpent for the Egyptians. The first one is pretty obvious, and that is the effect that these signs had. The Israelites believed. Chapter 4, verse 31, the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. That did not happen with Pharaoh, did it? Right? So there's, there's one difference. The second difference isn't so obvious. Because the word that's translated serpent in these two passages is, in fact, not the same word. In Exodus 4, chapter, sorry, in chapter 4, verse 3, the word translated serpent is nakash. I'm sorry, I'm not a Hebrew speaker, so if you speak Hebrew, I just pulverized it, so sorry about that. But it's something like nakash. It means a snake. But the word translated in chapter 7, verse 10, is the word tanin. And this word reflects some type of monstrous reptile. This is not just a snake. It's sometimes in Scripture translated as a dragon, a sea monster. It's probably the 
word that they would have used for dinosaur or even crocodile. Now you'll recall that Todd told us when he preached on chapter 4 that the snake was a sign of Pharaoh and the sun god, and that is true. But the monster or crocodile also represents Egypt and all her power because the Egyptian crocodile god, the Egyptians worshipped a crocodile god named Sobek. So suffice it to say, the snake of chapter 4 represents Pharaoh, but the monster reptile of chapter 7 symbolizes Pharaoh's power and the chaos and misery he had brought on the children of Israel. And of course, we know the rest of the story, don't we? The magicians of Pharaoh could appear to do the same thing. For each one threw down his staff, verse 12, and they turned into serpents. Now this might surprise you, that Egyptian sorcerers and magicians could do such a thing. But the key here is this word, magicians. Aaron does this by the power of God. The magicians do it by trickery and sleight of hand. But God will not be mocked. Verse 12, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. God is now beginning the process of impressing his sovereign will on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The result, as we have already pointed out, is that Pharaoh's heart, which is already hard, hardens more. So there's two applications I want to bring out for us today. The first is about God's sovereignty, and the second is about our response. This passage, indeed the whole book of Exodus, is an expression of God's sovereignty. One could say that Exodus overflows with God's sovereignty, both over the natural world and over human beings. Now, I'm not going to shy away from this. This is a difficult area. And many believers and non-believers are uncomfortable with the idea that God is sovereign, especially sovereign over uh, less than optimal natural events and over human beings. But as I will note shortly, the proper understanding of God's sovereignty in no way undermines the meaning of our response to God and his actions in history. So as we begin to think about this, let's be clear. What, what do we actually mean by God's sovereignty? A brief and adequate definition would be divine sovereignty refers to God's all-encompassing rule over the entire universe. All right, so what does all-encompassing rule mean? It includes God control, God's control of all things and God's authority over all things. And now perhaps there are a hundred thoughts racing through your mind. How in the midst of this pandemic, of the chaotic social and political world, of the loss and pain that so many of us experience, how can I say that God is in control of all things and God's authority extends over all things? And I don't want to sound trite, and this is not trite, but I say this because it's the clear teaching of Scripture. And I would ask you, why would you commit your life to and devote your life and resources to anything less than a God whom you trust is sovereign in all things? Some of you might be thinking, well, isn't the story of Exodus really the story of God's providence and not his sovereignty? And I would say, yes, it's the story of God's providence, but then I would point out that providence is, in fact, God's sovereignty in action. Providence is the way in which God's sovereignty is worked out in the created world. In this case, it's a distinction that has little difference. 
Where do we today, or where have we seen so far God's sovereignty in action over the natural world in these first chapters of Exodus? Well, we can go back to the beginning where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. We could think about the three signs that Moses was given that I've already talked about. The staff to the serpent, the leprous hand, the Nile turning into blood. All of them clear signs of God's control over the natural world. Today it appears that the staff that Aaron turns into something even more hideous and powerful than a snake and which consumes the other reptiles, another sign of God's sovereignty. Indeed, one of the commentaries I read described the 11 signs and wonders, including all the plagues, as the signs of sovereignty. Now we know the end of the story, don't we? What will be the outcome of God's sovereignty over the natural world in Exodus? It will be a great good, the deliverance of his people. But our problem today is that in the midst of the chaos, change, pain, and grieving in our world, we don't know the end of the story. Sometimes these days we feel like God has left us on our own. We don't know that it will be a great good. But don't we? Isn't that what the Bible teaches us, that things come out for our good? Maybe, maybe not to our liking, but for our good. Maybe things don't go the way we think they should. Perhaps they don't even end up the way we think they should, but with time in this life or the next, we'll be able to see that God was working for good in the midst of natural calamities, just as he was in Exodus. Even more obvious in these first chapters of Exodus is God's sovereign actions over human beings. We saw it in the first couple of chapters. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are worried about how numerous and potentially powerful the Israelites are becoming. So the Jewish midwives are commanded to kill the Hebrew boys as they're being born. But the the midwives refuse. Pharaoh commands his people to throw any Hebrew son into the Nile. And his own daughter, right, his own daughter has her heart softened toward an infant boy she finds floating in the Nile in a basket. And of course, that infant boy is Moses. Later, after Moses has killed an Egyptian, he flees to the land of Midian. Who would show up but daughters of the priest of Midian, one of whom becomes Moses' wife. And then in his first interaction with Moses at the burning bush, God tells Moses that Pharaoh will refuse to let the people go except under duress. And that the Israelites will find favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and they will despoil the Egyptians of silver and gold and fine clothing. In their first interaction then, as I said earlier, Pharaoh refused to let the people go and made their lives even more horrible. And today, we see that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So we see this whole array of human actions that seem to be occurring. Now you might say, how do I know that these reactions of human beings are affected by the sovereignty of God, by the God's control and authority? Couldn't it just be the case that these events just happened, that these People did these things and God had little to do with affecting its outcome, that maybe they were a series of coincidences or random events? Well, for starters, the Bible doesn't give much room for coincidence or random events. My, one of my favorite passages is Proverbs sixteen thirty-three: The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I used to joke when I was in college that even that table of random numbers in the back of that hated statistics textbook was randomly assorted in exactly the way God wanted it to be. I still hated that book. 
okay? Still hated that book. But moreover, as we're considering these events in Exodus, especially these events around Pharaoh, we have some specific help from the New Testament to understand what's happening here, and it's found in the book of Romans. In Romans 9, Paul, in talking about God's purposes and God's choices, asks, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And to answer that question, Paul goes on to cite two passages from Exodus. One is from Exodus 33, which we won't get to this year, uh, in our study of Exodus year. Paul quotes it this way in Romans 9, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then two verses later, quite relevant for today. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raise you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. This is kind of troubling, isn't it? Why would God do this? Well, the good news is that Paul doesn't leave that question unanswered either. Chapter 9, verse 22 and following. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. This should take your breath away. At least one reason, maybe the reason, that God sovereignly acts in the course of humans' events is so that those of us who believe in Jesus will understand the breadth and depth of the love and mercy that has been bestowed on us so that we will understand the riches of his glory. Now, two things might be coming to mind right now. They do certainly come to my mind. The first one is for me to say, hmm, not sure this is fair. Not sure this is fair. The second one is, does is to ask, does this mean that my responses and actions are meaningless? Well, let's think about each one. You, you and I might be thinking, this isn't fair that God would raise up people and allow them to do evil in order to show his might and power and glory upon his vessels of mercy. And you're right. It's not fair. But the reason it's not fair is because we all deserve condemnation. We've all done evil. We all continue to do evil. I'm not sure it's fairness that we should all really demand. The second answer is what Paul says. God raises up people and allows them to do evil so that those of us who have received mercy will know how great that mercy is, as overwhelming and humbling and possibly terrifying to us as that might be. And secondly, we might question, does God's sovereign control over human beings mean that our responses and actions are meaningless? And the answer to the Bible is, of course, an emphatic no. We see this in several places in Exodus and throughout Scripture. We see that Moses and Aaron obeyed. Was the result meaningless? No. The result was the unfolding of God's plan. Second, people are often held responsible for their actions and not long after those actions. Again, in Exodus, Pharaoh is judged and we're going to see him ultimately destroyed. But you could also think about Goliath taunting the Israelites, and he's judged and killed. Or King Herod, 
who's struck down for accepting the accolades of other human beings that he is a God. And then were we to continue on into Romans 10, we would also see in regards to salvation, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Clearly, our responses and our actions are not meaningless. They have real impact and effect on us and others. And one effect is that, at least partially, it is through our responses and actions that God's sovereignty is, in fact, worked out. So the book of Exodus overall, our text today specifically, and in the entire scope of biblical witness exclaims that God is sovereign over the natural world and even over human beings, and that our responses and actions are not meaningless. Let's take a big breath. We had this little firecracker go off on our text today. The big fireworks start next week, right? Lots of big things. But boy, have we thought about some deep things today. Profound and deep. And at a time like this, confidence in God's sovereignty, sovereign control and authority is both most needed and most likely to be doubted. Many of us have had losses in these months, losses of the lives of loved ones, losses of events planned with great expectation, losses of jobs, losses of human connections. Even if we have somehow kept our confidence in God's sovereignty and providence, we want to scream, where is God in all of this? And so I'm going to close by reading something that's going to surprise you, mainly because of its source. It's not from a big theological text or anything like that. It's from the Allegheny News in Sparta, North Carolina. All right? This man writes in the editorial page, It's been four weeks since my wife Amy died after contracting COVID-19. She was the first death of COVID in Allegheny County. Most days I trudge along in a fog, struggling to focus on day-to-day details. Every single thing in the house reminds me of her and that she is no longer here. She will never be here again. Not only do I miss Amy every moment of every day, her death has shaken my faith in God. I hold that God is sovereign and that he either causes things to happen in this world or allows them to take place. Either way, God is in control. Neither of these options feel especially loving during this time of inexplicable grief. God seems far away. But during this horrible time, people have overwhelmed me with kindness. A dear friend cried with me in the parking lot outside the emergency department at the hospital as they did their best to save her life. Within minutes of her death, elders and their wives from our church sat with me on my front porch as I tried to imagine a life without my wife. A friend built a beautiful box from cherry wood that came from logs that I'd cut from her grandmother's home place. We buried her remains in that box. My co-workers from Wilkes County Community College have kept me well-fed, and friends have taken me out for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
I have discovered that these offerings of food are beyond physical nourishment and are a covert way of attending to my emotional needs for connection. A few days after the memorial service, a friend stopped by with an apple pie. He asked if there was anything he could do for me. I told him that the funeral flowers were in the basement and they were dying and that I couldn't walk through them anymore. I told him if I could load them on my truck and drive them to the transfer station, I would do it, but I couldn't imagine throwing them onto the trash heap. He raised his hand and said, I'll take care of it. Such simple yet precious gifts. I have come to treasure those that stop me when I'm out to offer their condolences. They usually suggest that they don't know what to say and settle on some version of I'm sorry. I've discovered that those two words carry much weight to those of us who are hurting. As I reflect on these past weeks, I realize that God isn't far away. God has been sending expressions of love to me every day. When I confessed through tears that I didn't know if I could bury Amy, my family said, we'll help you. When I felt as though I could be consumed in cavernous emptiness, someone showed up my door and said, I just wanted to lay eyes on you. Memorials were made, and the response was phenomenal. She would have been so happy. I now see God in a different light. When I thought I couldn't see his face, he showed up by placing a friend in the aisle with me at the grocery store that just nods hello. He speaks through a clerk at the convenience store who says, I'm sorry about your wife. He pops up in a late night text from a friend who writes, just checking in. As I have ached with grief, I have experienced and witnessed the love of a sovereign God at work through my family, friends, and neighbors. God is closer than I imagined. I don't know when and how this chaos is going to end. I don't even know if we're all going to survive it. I don't know if we're being pounded and punished for past sins or prepared and polished for future service or maybe both. I just don't know. But I know this. Today, just like in the days of Exodus, God is sovereign and in control. And just like in the days of the Exodus, that our responses and actions have meaning. And right now, our response should be that you and I and those around us here should be those through whom the sovereign God loves and works in the midst of the chaos, loss, and grief in our church community and in our broader community in which we live. May we obey and faithfully respond. Amen.